Hello and welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with the A.B. Corcor Foundation for Mental Health. I'm Terry, the creator and co-host of this podcast. I've lived with depression most of my life, and I know how easy it can be to feel all alone in the experience. I'm not alone, and you aren't either. And I'm Dr. Anita Sands, a licensed clinical psychologist and life coach with a number of my own diagnoses, all of which bring a certain amount of anxiety and depression along with them. There is great power in shared experiences. We share our own as we engage in intimate and candid conversations with our weekly guests, exploring different perspectives on and experiences with depression. We keep it real because depression is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. So do you think you will always be in depression's grip that no one cares about you or understands that you'll never experience joy again? Today's episode looks at those kinds of words, always, no one, never, which are examples of absolutist language. We'll speak with a mental health researcher who believes that absolutism is not only a symptom, but a contributing factor to our depression. It's information we've shared before, and probably will again, because the language of depression not only offers us warning signs, but it's a clue to the people in our lives who are more able and likely to notice the way that we're talking than other warning signs or symptoms of depression that they might not have exposure to, for example, if our sleep patterns or our hygiene routines have changed. Before we dive into our interview, we want to mention findings of another study on the language of depression. It was released by the Crisis Text Line here in the U.S. They analyzed more than 129 million text messages that they had fielded to identify the key words that indicate texters are at high risk for suicide. And they're a bit of a surprise. Nancy Lublin, the text line's founder, says that most people would guess that the words would be help, sad, or desperate, words that communicate awful feelings. But instead, they found that the most important words to look for are those related to the mode of attempting suicide. For example, the words excedrin, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and most of all, the use of the pill emoji. They use that knowledge to triage callers, but it's good information for us to have as friends, parents, and teachers of people who may be texting about their mental states. And that brings us to the research we're exploring today. We found it in an article titled, People with Depression Use Language Differently. And in it, the researcher writes, quote, from the way you move and sleep to how you interact with the people around you, depression changes just about everything. It's even noticeable in the way you speak and express yourself in writing. How so, we wondered. So we reached out to the UK author to talk about his findings and what we can learn from them. Here now is Dr. Mohamed Amasali in an interview recorded a few years ago, giving his voice to depression. there. How are you? Hi there. It's Mo speaking. Can you hear me? I can. Is Mo what you prefer to be called? Oh yeah, that's fine. Most perfect. So Mo it'll be, but we also want to introduce him a little bit more formally before we begin. 
I'm Mohammed Al Masawi, Dr. Al Masawi, uh, PhD psychologist. Um, I, I'm specialized in mental health issues, specifically the language um, of mental health. That's what my research is mostly focused on so far. And my super specific interest would be absolutist thinking and the absolutist words that people use uh, who have mental health problems, anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. Absolutist thinking. It's what us lay folk might call all or nothing or black or white thinking. It doesn't leave room for different perspectives or the grays in life. And Mo says the words associated with it can help accurately predict whether someone is suffering from depression. I strongly believe that people with depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, it wasn't so much that they had negative content in their mind, which is the uh, established position, which is, you know, people with depression are, are negative thinkers. And so the focus is on the content of their thoughts and the negative ideation that they have. I was more interested in the process of their thoughts, how they actually think. Using his research lab, Mo conducted a data text analysis of online mental health forums, examining posts from more than 6,400 members. This next part's a little bit academic, but bear with us. The research shows that I think depressed people use absolutist words like completely, always, never. Uh, there's like, I think there's a list of about 15 of them. 50% more than non-depressed controls. Uh, and it's the same for anxiety as well. And with suicidal ideation, it's 80% more than non-depressed control. So you see, as the severity of the illness increases, you get a corresponding increase in the rate of absolutist words used in language. So I'm assuming when you say always and never that you don't mean things can always change or my depressive episodes never last. You mean it the opposite way, right? Yeah, so I mean, it's saying things can always change is, is an interesting way of flipping it. What you're essentially, you're, you're absolutist about being flexible in that sense. Um, so no, what I, the absolutism that I'm talking is more of a rigid mindset. So I'd love people to think I think can always change. That's actually... That's essentially the only form of acceptable absolutist thinking, which is to be absolutist about flexibility. That's a, a very healthy way to think. What we find is it's all the other types of absolutism. It's I'm an absolute loser. I'm always lonely. What the computer does, and my studies use computers to analyze uh, language, they look at the functional words like always. Because if you say I'm sometimes lonely, Mm -hmm. That's normal. That's everybody is sometimes lonely. It's the always that makes the loneliness a pathology. Which begs the chicken or egg question. If, as people with depression, we think in absolute terms, is that because of our depression? Or does having those kinds of thoughts contribute to our depression? Mo says most research suggests the latter. So how is this information useful in terms of us recognizing perhaps the thinking in ourselves or hearing it in someone else and being aware that they may be vulnerable? Yeah. So first of all, it's recognizing it because we focus on the content of what someone's saying rather than the style of how they're saying it. So one thing to do first thing is just to be aware of the style of how people are speaking and whether they are being absolutist or an absolutist. You then have to do what's called disputing. And then this just comes from the clinical literature, which is to challenge that. Um, and you, sometimes you can even challenge it quite aggressively. So, for example, if I say um, I'm always lonely, challenge that am i always lonely have have i never not been lonely is that because as soon as you find one chink in the absolutism 
um, you break the absolutism. So it, it, and, and, and as soon as you break the absolutism, you'll see that their thinking becomes a lot more flexible. And you can do that for yourself. You can do that for other people, depending on who has the problem. Does the breaking of it last? Is this just something you have to learn to keep doing every time those thoughts come into your mind? Or once you start challenging those thoughts, do you have them less? The absolutist mindset will often have taken a lifetime to develop because the person who's depressed will have spent years telling themselves that they're a complete loser or that they're, you know, they'll never get anything right. The, that, that cognitive pattern has taken a long time to substantiate. So it takes a long time to remove. It's not a case of just, oh, yeah, you're right. I've realized the problem here. And now the rest of my life is different. That'd be nice, though, wouldn't it? But given the realities of change, how can thinking about the way we think help us manage our depression? If you're, if you're speaking to a therapist or you're with a therapist, discuss it with them. If not, think about it for yourself. Is there something that, that you believe is all-consuming or has to be that way? What, what um, Albert Ellis refers to as demands, demands that you make either on the world or on yourself. And... It, once you find those demands, you then have to challenge what challenge them, challenge the absolute. Hopefully, you develop a new flexible pattern of thinking where you see things much more rationally. Because that's the key thing about absolutism, is it's fundamentally not rational. There is there are no absolutes in the world. That you, you know, nobody gets everything wrong. Nobody is always loser or anything like that. Um, so it's a, it's a fundamentally misguided way of viewing the world, and it's just a case of seeing how misguided and irrational it is, and again, and practicing it, and practicing it over and over again. Because, like you said, it's not a it's not a simple cure. And I'm assuming you would have to do that practice when you are not depressed because when those thoughts i will i am always alone nobody cares i will never be happy again i can't really imagine myself lying in bed having those recurring thoughts thinking will you really never feel happy again you know i'm not sure that somebody in depression has the clarity or the distance to question their thinking that, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and, and that is a problem that I found as well. When, when I speak to people with depression is they say, it, when you're in that state, yeah, you, you, you don't have enough clearness of mind to be able to start analyzing yourself and doing all those things. But, which is why, to some extent, this is more useful to people around other people who have depression to help them out when they're not able to see things clearly for themselves. And and uh, and step in with the right kind of advice, um, focusing on, you know, what what is the what what is the style of thinking here, and can I challenge this absolutist negative uh, mindset? And as someone who, um, while it may be very healthy and good for me, might resist having someone challenge my thinking, I I pr- would prefer, I think, to add this to what we call our toolbox and to say almost like homework, you know, that there are some things that we have to do to prevent getting back into it. And this could be part of it by really challenging our thinking when we're well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, one of the key issues is actually even identifying what the absolutist thought is. Because for a lot of people, it'll be different things. You know, if you have self-esteem issues, it'll be different to if you have anger management issues, which will be different to if you have social anxiety. Each one has its own absolutist thought, whether it's people must like me or um, I must be respected or I'm always a loser. These are all absolutist thoughts and these are all demands that you're making on the world. But each one has a different pathology associated with it, whether it's anxiety, depression, or 
uh, anger management. But so it's it's also a case of identifying what what it is for this particular person or for yourself that is that is the key problem. So as you do this research, what is your dream or best hope for how it's used and how it helps people with depression, anxiety, or suicidal thoughts? Um, one thing is I'd like to, so in the clinical, in clinical practice, there's a, a heavy focus on negative thinking, which is, as I said, the content of thoughts. I'd like to just shift that a little bit towards the process of thinking, what I call the cognitive distortions and the chief cognitive distortion, which is absolutist thinking. So not to say negative thinking doesn't matter or anything like that, but I just think there's a little bit too much of an emphasis on negative thinking and a little not, and not enough emphasis on the style and process of thinking. So that's one thing. Another is using technology and text analysis programs like the Crisis Text Line does to better study, understand, and ultimately guide people to the specific treatment they need to live healthier, fuller lives. Terry, I, I thought this was, was really, really helpful information, and I love that it does go back to some of the things that we've learned about challenging our thoughts and challenging the lies that depression tells us. And when I do absolutist thinking, always and never, or I, I hear anybody else doing it, um, I ask them to think back to those those little tests or scales, um, tests where they say you can pick the option of um, never rarely, sometimes, often, or always. And when you hear yourself or someone else using the never and the always, which are on the two ends of the scale, what you ask them to do is to restate what they're thinking or saying using those three other options that are in there, which is the the sometimes, often, or rarely. And then your mind gets a chance to hear what you're saying in a more flexible, probably a lot more realistic way. Because that's one of the ways I think that depression really leads us further and further into, you know, painting ourselves into a corner with no options or just into really, really dark places. Um, so anything we can do to break that up brings in some light. And you use the word options, but then light as well. And, and I was going to say hope, you know, when no one understands, then you really are alone. When people rarely understand, there's still that chance, as you say, that somebody will. Um, and there is somebody who mm -hmm. will. So, yeah, yes. I really liked it. And for me, it's just uh, an easier thing to identify. You know, I may or may not notice my mood changing. I may or may not recognize mm -hmm. that my desire to sleep more or bathe less or, you know, clean less is related to my depression. Um, they're a little too personal maybe to be objective about. But the language, I hear that and it's a little ding, you know, uh -huh. just one of those uh -huh. warning signs. Well, thanks to Mo and thanks to you, Terry. Thank you, Anita. Talk next week. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding helps you better articulate and reflect on your own experience with depression or better understand how to support someone else who is struggling. If this episode has been of comfort or value to you, know that there are hundreds of others like it in our archive, which you can easily find at our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up, even if it's hard. 
If someone else is struggling, take the time to listen. 